All right, well, a good sleepy morning to you once again. Welcome. And uh, this is an official welcome to Mr. Theodore Poucher up in the cry room. Hi, Theo. Welcome to Gateway. Yeah. <laughs> Waving at all of you, so. Good. Well, have you ever had one of those moments where just for a little bit, time kind of slows down? You know, usually it's some kind of accident or crisis or some really enormous event in your life, and time just sort of stops and goes really slow, and then it's normal again. Of course, you, uh, you all know most of the ones from my life because when you, you know, when you preach, you tell every story you can think of. So uh, there was uh, the time, I won't tell them all, but there was the time the gentleman years and years ago drove through the glass doors in the lobby here at Gateway. That was about 15 years ago. That was exciting. And, and as he came through, you know, I could like see every shard of glass doing that thing, you know, you see on TV. And, and then there was slipping off my roof. You've heard that story forever. And it actually wasn't the falling. The falling took absolutely zero time, but the slipping was like this slow motion thing. And uh, when I walked out of the room where my mom was receiving hospice care was this surreal thing and just realizing I was flying out of town and would never see her again. And, and uh, you know, well, short of heaven. And, and uh, just like it's kind of this strange time warp. There was a theory that that, uh, that happens to us when we experience especially crises and so forth, because in those moments we have a lot of adrenaline running and the adrenaline makes our our mind work so well that we can just like do lots of things and observe lots of things. And that's pretty much been disproved, which I was disappointed because I would have finally figured out how to pass calculus instead of flunking. You know, you just take it during an auto accident and you can just do all kinds of things with your mind. Turns out that's not true. The, the current theory is that on an average day when you just kind of go about the same things, your mind doesn't really store that infima- much information. So I get up every day and I realize now I do everything exactly the same. I unload the dishwasher in exactly the same way, you know, and I get ready for the day. And then I drive my, my huge commute to church, 0.9 miles, and uh, down the same road, take the same one turn, you know, it's hard to get here, and, and uh, my, my brain's just like, no, I've got this already, I'm not wasting any more space, you know, I've, I've got that, and so we don't tend to make many memories when we're doing the same things, but in a crisis, our brain sees all these new things and, and lays down this kind of rich fabric of memories all of a sudden. Now, it turns out that, that our perception of time has to do with the depth of memories. And so as it's putting all this down, it's like things slow down. And it's said that that's, that's why we experience when we're a child, a summer is this thing that just lasts forever, right? We're learning to swim and we've never been to this place and, you know, grandpa takes us hiking and all these new things and summer just lasts forever. And then as we get older, we're all telling each other, doesn't time just seem like it goes faster? That's because we're not really doing anything new and we've seen it all before and our mind's just like, no, I don't need, this, don't need more memory space on this one. I've seen it before. So I don't know what that tells us about how we should age. But anyway, go out and do something new and slow the clock down, I guess, is the point. Today, we return back to our series in Luke. And Jesus is going to give us a picture of some undisclosed amount of time. Well, we know it's at least 2,000 years long, maybe a lot more. 
And uh, he is going to give us an event kind of at the beginning, the, a lot of detail about an event. He's kind of go slow motion through one event. And then he's going to like half a verse, this sweeping cover of time, down to another event, and he'll kind of slow down for that one. And so that's our chronology, if you will, today. That's what we're looking at. All of it together, we could say, is the end times or the last days. So in other words, last weekend... Pastor Bob talked to you about the warm and fuzzies of Christmas and the first advent, and today he assigned me to talk to you about the end of the world, so Happy New Year. (laughs) But what is your outlook about the new year? Lisa has already uh, asked you about that in our worship time. What's what's your outlook? Are you positive? Are you hopeful? Are you, what, what are you? Jesus has some tremendously encouraging words for us today, no matter what we are expecting to experience. We're in Luke chapter 21, and we start with sort of the beginning of the end. Remember that a few weeks ago, Pastor Bob talked about um, they were in the temple. We're we're really at the the last week. We're in the midst of Holy Week here, and they're in Jerusalem. And the, the disciples said, wow, look at the temple, isn't that amazing? And she's like, yeah, that's all coming down. <laughs> and, and Pastor Bob talked to us about the destruction of the temple, and, and we covered that section. We're really picking up there again, and, and the disciples, when they heard that, said, well, now when's that going to happen? And, and what are the signs, you know, thinking maybe, well, if the temple's destroyed, maybe that's the end of the world, uh, might have been their thinking. And, and so they're saying, and, and what are the signs of the, the end of the age as well? Jesus begins to answer some of those questions, at least a little bit, as much as he's going to. And he says, well, when you see Jerusalem, this is brilliant. Okay, guys, think about this. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, that's it. You'll know that the desolation is near. Then he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful, he says, it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. He says, well, when it happens, you'll know it. I mean, it's going to be obvious. You look get up one morning and you're surrounded by armies. That's a really good clue. He says, that's when it will happen. And he gives, us, uh, gives them, his listeners then, some advice. Now, this would happen about... 30-some years after he spoke this, and many of those people would have still been alive. And he said, you should, you should probably get out of the city. Like, don't go, if you're not in it, don't go in there. Good advice. In fact, the church fathers, some of the early church fathers write that, that uh, many Christians did just that. And they moved away when they saw this event coming in 70 AD. And they escaped because they followed the wisdom of Jesus at that point. And Jesus goes on, he also expresses regret. Now, doesn't this just sound like the, the person we've been following for the last couple of years as he interacts with people? He says, now this is what's going to happen, but I just feel so bad for the really vulnerable people, the young moms and those, and those children. I just wish it wasn't happening to them. But he says then, the outcome's unavoidable. This, is, this has been prophesied. This has been determined. This is a consequence of rejecting the Messiah. Now, understand the, the irony here the, or, or, or the, the sequence here is that we're like prob- maybe Tuesday, probably Wednesday. Wednesday's the day the, that uh, 
the, the, um, the leadership, the Pharisees, make a plot with Judas, right? It's all solved by then. It's, it's set in motion there. And, and maybe 30 hours after he's speaking this, he'll be on trial. The point of the trial is a formal rejection of his claim to be king. Absolutely. Israel rejects that you would be king. How different it would have been if that had actually been a ceremony to welcome him and embrace him and coronate him as king. But they're, they're rejecting Messiah, and so it's been prophesied that they will be taken prisoners to all the nations. We're talking about the last days. Now, technically, we might think of that starting at the cross or his resurrection or his return to heaven or, or the coming of the Spirit. We have the, the church age, and things are going to kind of unfold in a really predictable pattern. One of those things is the destruction of the temple. It happens so repetitively, this destruction kind of thing, that if there's a temple again, and many people believe, if you read Matthew, Jesus maybe is talking about the destruction of a temple at the Great Tribulation in the end times. So like any time the Jews build a temple, guess what? Somebody's coming after them to destroy it. It just happens in this pattern way. But here's the beginning of the end. And then we get this really brief statement about the end times and the scope of them. He says, Jerusalem, from the time it's destroyed on, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the, the church age or the end times. Now, there are lots of, you know, how do you summarize at least a couple thousand plus years of history and God's purposes and so forth? There are a lot of ways we could do that, but we have to do it kind of efficiently this morning, unless you want to stay for the whole weekend and tomorrow and so forth. I want to suggest we do that by thinking of these, these themes, these patterns that just kind of continue to cycle through. Throughout the church age or the times of the Gentiles, Satan is repeatedly doing his worst, right? Promoting, encouraging, manipulating, getting the Gentiles to create destruction, Destruction especially on God's people, on Israel. And how many times have we seen that down through the centuries, right? This just ruthless, brutal attack against the Israelites. It's just a, a common theme of history. And this is, Satan is repeatedly doing that. And he's bent on destruction. So, hey, if the Gentiles want to destroy each other too, that's good because he's all in for that. While that's going on, God is doing something different. He is repeatedly doing his best, which is to save the Gentiles. To save the Gentiles. So let's take a little detour. Let's uh, remind ourselves of a few things we know about Satan. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to the people who are going to plot his death. So now this isn't at the same time, but in our verse, you know, the people who are plotting his death, they're doing it right as he's speaking. But in this occasion on John 8, he says to them, you belong to your father, the devil. Harsh words, right? But you see, you want to carry out your father's desires to murder me. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is Satan's purpose, destruction. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was a, was a prime example. It's sort of our first example of that. But he's not going to stop there. 
Neither is he going to wait between the destruction of the temple in, in 70 AD until the, the very end of the end times. He's at it all the time. His purpose is destruction. In fact, sometimes you see that destruction coming up and butting up against your life. It invades your life. Satan has a strategy to create this. He starts with lies. Jesus says it's his natural language. It's his currency, if you will. He doles this out. He, he promotes, he creates and promotes lies. Lies about God, right? And what does he want to do with those lies? He wants to create doubt. Doubt God exists. Doubt God's character. Doubt in the grace of God, the gospel of God, the goodness of God. Please, Satan says, just doubt something about God. That he cares about you. He just cares about everyone else. Anything. Doubt something about God because where there is faithlessness, there's death. There's destruction that he can rot. And then that cycle creates momentum to repeat itself. See, here's what he does. He tells lies. People believe the lies. It causes devastation in some way in our lives. And then Satan has the gall to go point at that, usually through some person, and say, look at that. Do you see that destruction? How can you think that there's a good God? And he's the one responsible for it. Or we're, you know, we're partners in it sometimes, but, but it wasn't God's fault. He's the one doing this. And then he tries to tell this, this new lie, like, how could you possibly believe that God is good? Do you see this destruction? People believe that, and it creates more death. This is what he's doing. Now, God is doing something very different. Romans chapter 11 talks about the times of the Gentiles, and reading the whole chapter would be awesome. We don't have time. Here's a few very brief excerpts. Paul is talking, and he's speaking as the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles are now being welcomed into the church, and that's kind of a, uh, raises an important question. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people, Israel? By no means. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, then all Israel will be saved. Here's God's purpose with the times of the Gentiles. While Satan is encouraging the Gentiles to go around destroying things and each other, right? God's saving Gentiles and Jews if they're willing to enter the church, right? But then, at the conclusion of the time of the Gentiles, and not until the full number of Gentiles has been brought in, then he saves all Israel. This is God's strategy when the full number has come in. And this is what God is up to. And you look out at the world and you see destruction everywhere, but you also need to remember what God is up to. He is saving people out from the midst of that. So, there's the end times. There's a couple thousand years of history, and that's what's happening. And that's what we see even in our world today. And then we get in, back in Luke, the end of the end. So we've got the beginning of the end, a whole scope of history, and then the end of the end. He says, then, whoops, I forgot God's strategy. Here we go, back up. Truth. 
God, of course, deals with truth, where Satan deals with lies. He, he uh, reveals truth. He promotes truth. He writes down truth. He encourages truth. He wants you to learn truth so that you can what? So that you can have faith, so that you can believe in the truth. Because Jesus said, what does the truth do? It sets us free. It gives us life, right? And that in itself is a cycle that God repeats over and over again. You believe that God is gracious. You have faith in that grace, and you experience life everlasting. It begins now, and that creates not exactly a new kind of truth, but a demonstration of the truth that other people can see, and they can then believe and then experience life themselves. And God intends for that to keep going until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Okay, now we get to go to the end of the end. The end of the end. Back to uh, verse 25. Jesus says, Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, Jesus could give a lot of details, and ultimately, uh, you know, the Spirit does through the rest of the New Testament. But uh, he, he focuses on three primary elements of the end of the end, if you will. The first one is these universal sort of natural disturbances. These are not like an earthquake in one place or, you know, a, a tsunami on one coast. This is worldwide sort of scary stuff, right? Things are happening in the natural world. And you can read more about that in places like Revelation 6. And that creates terror among the nations, Sure, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, stars are falling out of the skies and huge things into the ocean and, you know, all of these uh, uh, amazing, scary things. Of course, people are terrified. And then the third element he, he, he gives is that his own appearing, right? He will come in a cloud with power and great glory. Here's the obvious thing about that. Jesus' return will be unmistakable and undeniable, that's the good news. You know, of all the things you worry about, don't worry about missing it. You don't have to worry about missing it. Like, I don't care where you are, if you're underground or, you know, asleep or, like, you don't have to worry about missing it. It will be undeniable, right? You will see it. What Jesus wants you to be concerned about is whether or not you're ready. He isn't worried that you'll miss him. <laughs> he knows how to get our attention, right? He'll get our attention, he wants to know that you're ready. Now, next week, as we finish up this section, Jesus will talk about how to be ready and the importance of being ready. Earlier in the book of Luke, we saw that uh, Jesus, in speaking about his return, we saw that his return is not a day of decision, right? His return will be a moment that confirms the decisions you've made. So Jesus says, make sure you are ready before I come next week. I sure hope he doesn't come back this week now that I've said that. But anyway, so you might want to get ready today, even without next week's sermon, but there you go. Be ready. Now, here's the other fascinating thing about this section. So Jesus gives this picture of the end of the end right, right as he comes back. And uh, we notice there that the signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, actually he borrowed that from Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. 
And uh, what else do we have here? Oh, all the earth and the nations in anguish and, and apprehensive of what's coming. He, he actually stole that from Isaiah, you know? It wasn't original to Jesus. Well, you know, son of God, yes. But Jesus, you know, he borrowed that from Isaiah. And what about the roaring and the tossing of the sea and the heavenly bodies being shaken? That's from Haggai. He was an Old Testament prophet as well. And then about his own coming, the fact that he's returning, you think he would know something about that? Well, actually, he gets that from Daniel. Chapter 7. Our precept Bible study group is going to start in Daniel chapter 7 in just a few weeks. What a great place to be studying. And Jesus, everything he says here is taken from the Old Testament. When he summarizes his return, he just quotes the prophets. I think some awesome things are happening in his doing that. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is going to unfold in keeping with Scripture exactly as it was always planned. Now again, remember the context of when he's speaking this, right? Wednesday, tomorrow night, arrest. Next day, cross, dead, gone. You might be tempted to give up. Here's what you need to understand. All of those Sunday school verses you learned in Sabbath school, actually, on Saturday or Friday night is like, that's how it will happen. Now, in the next few hours, you're going to be deeply distressed and disturbed and thinking all these things, but actually, and, and you think I came to Jerusalem to, to sit on the throne now, but let me tell you something. My kingdom will happen exactly as it's always happened. You, there, there have always, the, the plan was always two advents, right? Two comings. The cross is not a detour. The cross was always the plan. The plan always included resurrection. The plan always included the church age to welcome in the Gentiles. Thank you very much. Had no chance. Most of us here today probably had no chance without the church age. Thank you very much, God, that your grace is that big. Saving Israel at the end was always, always the plan. So here they are about to be in this turmoil, completely shaken to the core, right? And Jesus says, I've got this. I've got it. It's the plan. Even to the end of the end. It's the plan. So now what are we supposed to do with all this information one amazing verse at the end here. I love this. Luke 21, 28. He says, now when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This is amazing. This is amazing stuff. He says, when these things begin to take place, so important. What things? Well, he's talked about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, right, in their lifetime. He's talked about the great tribulation and his coming in clouds with glory and everything in between. You see these patterns of destruction and of God's salvation, the persecution of the saints, the natural disasters, the trials of a sinful world, living in a sinful world, when all of these things begin to take place. You have an opportunity to do something different. 
He says, I want to invite you to stand and to lift up your head. See, because here's the temptation when, I'm just guessing, when stars start falling out of the sky, <laughs> the temptation, but even see in our lives now, when, when, when we face trials, the temptation is to feel like God is losing control. Jesus says, you know, when that stuff happens, I want to invite you to trust me that I've got this, that God is not losing control, but instead view it as a sign that your redemption is drawing near. That's what I want you to think when things are very difficult. Even to the point of the destruction of the temple or the great tribulation. So certainly everything in our lives would count, wouldn't it? When these things begin to take place, take them as a sign that your redemption is drawing near. Not that God is losing control. So he says, stand up. Let's think about that for a moment. To stand up. This is in contrast, of course, to the people who are falling on the ground. Let me go to some of the details in Revelation 6. At, at, at the end of the end, it says, The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? These are people who are terrified, and they get it. What, what they, here, here's what I see. All these natural disasters are happening, and they finally at last give up on the, the, the thought that Mother Nature is just doing something bad. This is not Mother Nature. They, they recognize this is God, and this is the Messiah, the King, Jesus, and his wrath is coming. They understand it. And they, and they fall to the ground, and they wish they could die, and they wish they could be covered by the mountains and the rocks. They cower because they're anticipating judgment and they ask this question, who could possibly stand and survive any of this? Well, in our passage today, Jesus says, I invite you to. Well, God has actually been telling us how to stand in the midst of terrible things for thousands of years. Psalm 20. Psalm 20 says, now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed he answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. The psalmist knew why and how to stand who is it that stands? It's those who align themselves with God's king. See that? His anointed. And Jesus, his son, is his anointed king forever. And he gives him victory. And Jesus is telling us today, I would be glad to share my victory with you. It reminds me a little bit about some of the silly things we do with our sports teams. You know, someone wins the World Series and, or, or anything, you know, any sport, and a couple million people go out on the streets and pretend they did something, right? <laughs> they celebrate like they did anything, you know. 
Sorry, I'm really sorry to break this to you, Seattle 12th man fans. You've never done anything, right? You haven't scored a touchdown. Yeah, that's right. You didn't score a touchdown. You haven't gained a yard. You haven't made a tackle. Sorry, Blazer 6th man fans. You haven't done anything. You haven't scored a basket. You know, I apologize if you've actually been a Blazer, but you know, the rest of you, we haven't done anything, but you know, then we get to go out and celebrate like we did. And Jesus is saying, yeah, actually, that's what I'm doing. I, I did it all. I got it all. But I would love to share my victory with you. I'm going to have prayed. Come on out. Share my victory. And he invites you to stand, notice, in the face of tribulations. In the face of tribulations. He says, when these things begin to take place, not when you see me in the cloud, then you can finally be relieved, although we certainly will be, right? He says, when any of these things begin to take place, go ahead and stand. Now, the only way to do that is by faith in his victory, right? But that's what he's inviting us to do. Standing, of course, is is to have a hopeful expectation, It's to know that you're participating in his victory, to exalt in God. This is the perspective and the attitude available to those who trust God in the midst of an age that is fraught with danger and destruction. That's who can stand because Jesus has invited us to. He also says, I invite you to lift up your head. To lift up your head. Now, we, this is pretty intuitive. We kind of know what it means to be downcast, right? We know what that feels like. Not a great feeling. Job is the poster boy for that. Job chapter 10. Here's just a little bit from him. Kind of helpful. He says, if I'm guilty, woe to me, right? If I'm guilty of something, kind of makes sense that I would be head down, right? He says, even if I'm innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I'm full of shame and drowned in my affliction, If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. Now, Job is a little, he's processing, right? So this is just chapter 10. He figures it out by chapter 31 or something, you know, but we don't have time to read that far. It's a long journal of a lot of processing. And here he he still thinks that maybe God is after him, which he's not. Now, he has experienced tremendous trials and tribulations. And and so he says, you know, if I'm, I'm guilty, it would make sense to be head down. And if I'm innocent, I could lift my head. And he's right about that, right? A lifted head is a kind of, of innocence. Why isn't he? Well, it's not that he's guilty. It's, it's being drowned in affliction. So he's head down, not out of guilt, but out of just the weight of affliction. What Job is missing is faith. And he will find it eventually in his book, as I mentioned. But that's what he's missing here in chapter 10. Psalm 3, we find someone who understood this a little better. He says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, And he answers me from his holy mountain. Why is it that the the writer of this psalm knows he can lift his head? 
not out of his own innocence. He understands that it is God's reputation and glory that will lift his head. It is the righteousness ultimately for us of Jesus that lifts our head, not because we've done something to be innocent. We're not innocent. We're guilty. But he lifts our head out of his innocence and righteousness. We lift our head because Jesus asked us to, not in pride, but as an attitude of praise. The innocence and purity gained through forgiveness. That's why we're able to lift our heads. And Jesus says, I want you to do that when you begin to see terrible things happen. We're going to uh, finish our, our uh, service and, and I guess start our year here today by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're going to think about the cross here for uh, just a few moments. If you have a trust relationship with the Lord Jesus, we encourage you to take a, a, the bread and the cup. We're going to serve that to you as we sing a song that also allows us to uh, focus on the cross. Because it is at the cross that Jesus establishes the ability to even tell us to stand and and the ability to lift our heads. He purchases that victory and that right to provide redemption for us. And so we focus on that now. We'll just uh, serve you the bread and cup. Hold on to that. And then uh, after we serve everyone and and we've uh, sung together... We'll eat and drink. So let's sing.